and welcome to Partners in Diplomacy, a podcast series exploring the service, sacrifice, and adventure of life as a Foreign Service family member. I'm your host, Bonnie Miller, and we're joined by Michelle Fowler, a Foreign Service spouse, former teacher, artist, psychotherapist, and mother of four, who has used her skills and creativity to adapt to foreign service life over the past 14 years on four continents and five foreign postings. Welcome, Michelle, and thank you for sharing your experiences with us today. Thanks, Bonnie. So let's start with your early years. You were born in 1974 in Burbank, California, near L.A. What was it like growing up in your family and community in the 70s? 70s and 80s. It was actually a really cool place to grow up. It was very multicultural. When I think about who I was at my high school, I felt like a minority as a blonde, white, Caucasian woman. My friends had all different religious backgrounds. You know, one of my good friends, his family was from Egypt and another from India. Several others were Jewish or Catholic. Like it was really a melting pot kind of a place. So after high school, you went to college at Brigham Young University and you studied biology and conservation science, a very relevant topic in today's world. So back then, what were your career aspirations? I started out wanting to be like a forest ranger. I shifted focus to maybe doing environmental impact statements or working with the lobbying groups going forward into the Foreign Service. That had to change. So you took a 14-month break from university to serve as a missionary in Slovenia in 1996 and 97. Did that experience spark your interest in living overseas in the future? It definitely took away my fear. Uh, If anything sparked my interest, it was my mother. She did a study abroad in uh, Austria and traveled even behind the Iron Curtain before the wall came down. And she would talk about those experiences with such excitement. So while going to Slovenia was part of it, I think more than anything, that experience gave me the confidence that I could do it. I mean, the language was so challenging, but um, learning a language through immersion and being actually part of a culture that changed everything for me. You realized that if if you were immersed in the culture, the language came. It wasn't like studying it academically in a classroom. Oh yeah, absolutely. That was like night and day for me. I was like, okay, this is how my brain needs to absorb this. How and when did you meet your husband, James? It seems like you had a whirlwind romance. Oh, absolutely. No, we... Um... Yeah, I was my last semester with college and I did an internship out in Washington, D.C. working for an environmental lobbyist. They actually worked for the other side, like the pesticide companies. James and I met the very first weekend I was there at church on Sunday. He was a contractor at FSI at the time. It was like the stars aligned so that we were both ready for a transition in our lives and found each other at the same time. It was pretty awesome. And you found that you had similar interests. You were maybe both interested in working abroad. At the time, I think it just didn't occur to us. But it wasn't until probably three or four years into our marriage that we're like, 
oh, what would this be like? Maybe we could do this. Oh, we could travel and take our family with us and still experience the world. So you married James in 1998, and then you spent almost a decade using your science background to teach biology and chemistry, as well as Spanish, at high schools and online in Arizona. There was an opportunity to be a science teacher but oh, I've always kind of liked that. I've been good at that. So I took a classroom teaching job and then actually went back and got my teaching credential because it was a good fit. It was a good career shift. But then when it came time to choose stay home with my kids or work as a teacher, the math didn't work out anymore. I could pay the babysitter or I could pay myself, it was going to be a wash. So when you got married, did you discuss the possibilities of having a large family? I'm the oldest of seven, and my husband is the oldest of five. And then when his parents remarried, the oldest of 10. So for us, large family was like big numbers. <laughs> and we were like, well, we definitely want an even number. <laughs> And so it was either two or four because <laughs> we didn't want anybody to be left out. And so even with that even number, you had two girls and two boys. So that was good planning. <laughs> Pretty perfect. <laughs> so James got assigned to China. And before his first assignment, you both took a few months of Mandarin language training. And then talk about the other languages, because you've studied most languages of postings where you were stationed. Yeah, I was pregnant with number three when we joined the Foreign Service. They moved just out to DC to go to training. And so two or three months of intense Mandarin, I'm not sure how much of that three months I actually remembered just because of pregnancy brain and the stress and intensity of doing something so different and so new. Um, but it definitely helped me have more confidence moving to China. Chengdu, middle of nowhere, China, that city that's so big, but nobody's ever heard of it. But at post, they had a great language program and the tutor would come to my house two or three times a week. We uh, hired a helper in our home who only spoke Chinese. And so if anything, just being around her, having to navigate everything, you know, that probably help my language faster than anything that I did at FSI before we got there. Um, so I learned in that first experience how valuable learning the language would be. And so every post that we went to after that made sure that, okay, we're just all in. If we need to learn Spanish now, then we're all in. I started going to the post language programs. We would put cartoons on for the kids in that language, speak to the kids in that language. James, my husband, has always uh, had Spanish. And so even from the time the kids were very little, we wanted them to be bilingual. And so he was speaking Spanish in the home ever since they were born. But the switching languages every two or three years, that was more challenging. The immersion and just being in the community um, was just so key. We even would join the local religious group, church community, uh, whoever we could be involved with. You know, that's particularly challenging in China where the government really puts a separation between diplomats and the local community. But in other posts where you can be involved locally more, really help the language learning. 
So you had Slovenian and you had Spanish, and then you studied Mandarin. And what about Montenegrin, Serbo-Croatian, and Portuguese? Did you have those languages too? Oh, no. And my Spanish, let's be honest, my Spanish was whatever I picked up from my husband talking to the kids bilingually in Arizona, right? Spanish is very much around you. And so it was almost like an immersive, like learning Spanish, even before we joined the foreign service. No, I didn't have any Montenegrin. And while it was close to Slovenian, there were some significant differences, even grammar wise. The Portuguese, I, I I wish that we had had more time there because I got just enough to be able to start communicating and have it start to separate from Spanish in my head, but not enough to like make it solid. So it's more of a just jump in and just you go with it, you know, use what you can and, and make it work. You went to your first posting Chengdu, China with three little kids. So your first three were born in the U.S.? Yes. In fact, all of them were born in the U.S., <laughs> um, two, the girls in Arizona, and then um, pregnant uh, in the middle of training, born in, the, number three was born in Virginia. And then when he was four months old, we went to China, got pregnant there. And, and that was quite the experience of go, doing all the prenatal stuff while we were in China and having to coordinate with post doctors and people uh, to even travel like to Beijing to get certain tests done to monitor the pregnancy. And, but then came back in between posts and our number four was born in California. And when he was five weeks old, then we went to Bogota. So back to Chengdu, what was your life like? There's an awesome international women's club there. And I found that in most posts, they did have an international women's club of some kind. And that, especially in Chengdu, was a real lifesaver because those women all felt isolated. They were in a strange place. And so they were very welcoming and quick to want to be friends and to be a support for one another. So I got involved with the club and the cooking class and the yoga and the shopping adventures and exploring the city and excursions. Because the way the Chinese government handles spouses overseas, your working options are very limited. So there were a lot of women who came there with their spouse, either um, as diplomats or just in the business community, and their options were very limited. And so they were looking to find meaningful ways to interact. So as part of that women's club, <laughs> they did a lot of charity work. You would find orphanages or places that they could support or do fundraising around. So getting involved in those clubs um, was super helpful to help me quickly make friends feel anchored and involved in the community. And it didn't always involve speaking the language of the local place. So that provided a lot of experiences that were organized for you and a great way of, of making friends and connecting with others, maybe who came from different backgrounds than you. Next, you moved to Bogota, Colombia from 2008 to 2009. So that was kind of a dicey place security-wise. What was your life like there? It was such a contrast to China. Like some things about China didn't feel very safe, just traffic and food and pollution and all of that. But I always felt safe walking on the streets. And Bogota was the opposite of that. And just this 
idea that I had to be careful and don't wear jewelry, be careful about how much money you have with you. And just that there were armored cars that would take you to the embassy and back. And just that sense that while things might be kind of stable in the capital, basically the rest of the country was in flux. And this kind of long-term lack of safety, um, that was really challenging. You feel it, even if you're not directly impacted, even if nothing ever really happens to you, you definitely feel it when you're at a post like that. Then you had a, a total change security-wise, culture-wise, environment-wise, when you moved to Podgorica, Montenegro in the Balkans, and you spent two and a half years there from the beginning of 2010 to 2012. How is that posting for you and your family? Oh, it was such a literal breath of fresh air because we went from these humongous cities in China and Bogota to the capital city with only 200,000 people. And there's such a rich history in Eastern Europe, Roman ruins and green hills and the Adriatic Sea, 35 minutes from your house and the warm Mediterranean weather and having a garden in the yard and neighbors who would see my kids fall when they were going to, when they were walking to school and run out of their house and check if they were okay, even though they didn't know the language and couldn't speak to my kids and um, them sharing pomegranates and kiwi out of their personal garden. And there's just a sense of family and support there. One of our coolest experiences was getting off the plane into Podgorica and I, we had, you know, one and a half year old through an eight and a half year olds. And we'd been traveling for several hours, felt like days. And they opened up a second customs line for us and ushered our little family, checked us in. And the guard, security guard offered to hold the baby and, oh, we're so happy. And, oh, you're so lucky that you have four kids. And, oh, we always wanted to have four kids. I can't tell you how many times we heard that from the people in that city. So just the shift was such a kind of a stress relief for us and learning that we could have such a high quality of life in a small place. The community was small. So those same things that we relied on previously, the International Women's Club became a good rallying point. The parents at the school, because the school was smaller, were very close knit and you did a lot of activities in the community around the school. Uh, there was a, a wonderful art teacher that we found and she started doing painting and wine Wednesday nights. And it was whoever wanted to come and just relax and learn how to paint and get connected with one another. And I think there were five of us that would regularly go. And that was something I'd always wanted to do. And now here in this kind of slower pace of life in this smaller community, there was actually time that I could do that. And so this wonderful teacher kind of mentored me and pushed me. And she's like, okay, if you're doing all this painting, then we, you have to have a goal. You have to have an exhibit. And so she helped guide me through planning and making brochures and advertising. And she set up a space at the, the community center. You know, the, the paper came and interviewed me about it. And I got to share all of the work that I had done over those two years with the people of the community and with my friends and kind of celebrate the 
the time that we had had in Montenegro. And it was this beautiful way to represent like the changes that had happened for me personally and for our family that got channeled into this new love of art. I don't know. It was, it, that was a beautiful thing that she, that the teacher did for me to be able to help me get to that place. So from the very first day, you get welcomed into the country, you feel at home in the community, you reach out and you connect with people, and then you use your creativity, urged on by your teacher, to create this exhibit. So by the time you got to Montenegro, you had two school-age children, and these kids had been around, this was their third post, and then after that, you were on your way to the fourth, and then the fifth. So how did your kids adjust to living in different places and then at the end coming back to the United States, their American home where they had never really lived before? Oh, (laughs) I asked my 15-year-old, what would you want kids to know before they go into the foreign service? And he says, well, be flexible and just go with it. And expect to move every two to three years. You know, the hardest part about all of that was when they would make good friends. Because even if you live in the same place your whole life, it can be a struggle to find that person that you really connect with. And yet with the Foreign Service, you know that that person is going to move or you're going to move. And so... One advantage is you show up at those international schools and those kids are just as hungry for friends as your kids are when they get there. And so it's like, wait, who's going to be my new best friend? And within a week, that's kind of already been sorted out mostly, you know? And sometimes you're at a post where there isn't quite that person that clicks for your kid. And that's more of a struggle. But you try and get them involved in things and in activities and and help them feel like, they can find their way and keep looking for those connections. But when we came back to the U.S., being in like language training for a year before Shanghai and the kids going to school, that was kind of that first like wake up for them. Like, I don't know where Illinois is. (laughs) The teacher would just talk about it like it was no big deal. Wait, why does everybody expect that I know all about the Civil War? So there were definitely pieces in American culture that the kids felt this disconnect around. But because Virginia has a lot of military and a lot of like Foreign Service families coming in and out, there's some understanding of what those kids are going through. And so that was easier. But when we moved to Arizona... My kids would say things like, ah, but they don't get it. Like my elementary school kid was saying, why does nobody wants to be my friend? Nobody's trying to be my friend because they just didn't uh, have that same need that in the foreign service, when they're at the international schools, that the kids learn to reach out and they learn to connect quickly and to include people. And so that has been a challenge uh, coming back. So the good part for them was that they learned to be flexible and adaptable and move and make different friends. I'm sure that by now, four years in, they know where Illinois is. (laughs) They know all about the Civil War. That's something that can be learned easily. But those skills of adapting and understanding different cultures and making friends, those are harder. And it sounds like your kids just kind of osmosed that from their experiences. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, those are hard won lessons, actually. You know, they have to put themselves out there. They have to really try and connect with people. And no, if I ask the kids, would you trade what you learned? They're like, no. Okay, there are hard pieces, but they see people differently. People having a different skin color or a different religion or a different background or a different way of seeing the world, even a different opinion, they are much less quick to judge. They just have this mental flexibility to see like, oh, well, maybe my way is not the only way or the right way necessarily. How can I understand and still love and work with these people who are different than me? So you said you came back to the Virginia area for studying Chinese to go to Shanghai. I think I did get to do a short course, like for emergency kind of Mandarin, <laughs> the, the basics, right? To help people kind of take a taxi or ask for food at a restaurant. But you had lived in China before, so maybe it was coming back when you finally moved there. And you spent three years in Shanghai. And so what were some of the highlights and some of the challenges of that posting? Oh, Shanghai was a crazy city. And we kind of had an idea going there because we had been in the China posts before. And he warned me, he's like, it's going to be really long hours. Do we still want to do this? You know, we wanted the kids to get their Chinese back because like our son, because he was four months old when we went to Chengdu, he only spoke Chinese for the first two years of his life. But that changed very quickly, right? They're so flexible, but we wanted them to be able to renew what they had learned. So going back to China, we're like, okay, Shanghai, bigger city, more, more cosmopolitan city. The schools at the higher levels in high school were, were much better. Um, so the opportunities for the kids, you know, we're always balancing, okay, what's the quality of the school going to be like there? What's the quality of the lifestyle? What's the quality of um, the support for families? Um, those were always big factors in our choosing a post. But Shanghai, man, talk about a world changer because you thought you were in a big city before. This is, it's mind blowing. And the pace of the city and the pressure of the city reflects that. And so even the hours that my husband had to work, going to work on Monday morning, coming back Tuesday night, staffing or projects that just the pressure of the economic importance of China at the time to the U.S. interests and the pressure that that put on his job meant that we didn't have him as much. And yet... Shanghai was one of the coolest posts because the international community was huge. There were like 200,000 plus expats living in Shanghai. So you didn't just have one international women's club. You, there were like 30 you could choose. You could join the, the art club. You could, there were community centers where you could take classes in English and whatever you wanted. Um, I joined the international women's choir there and sang with them during the period that I was there. And we would go to different venues and perform, which was really cool, and met some really interesting women that way from all over the world. You could take the subway, you could take taxis, you could really get around the city. So you found a way to make that city your home and immerse yourself in whatever activities you wanted and be creative, take up a new hobby. Was that where you made the decision to pursue graduate studies in counseling? 
Yes, because I saw the pressure of that city because my kids were now high school, junior high, just starting into that kind of crucial age and they needed help. But it wasn't just my kids and my son, the youngest one who needed support services. And I saw marriages that really were struggling and we could see how people needed access to the support and making sense of what what did it mean to be a third culture kid and how can you help your children through all of this? And I would go to seminars that the foreign service would provide or different talks or read and, and trying to learn as much as I could to be a support in my community and to my family. I'd always wanted to go back to graduate school, but for environmental science with the choice that we had made as a family, I needed something more flexible. And so I kind of, I was like, okay, for our family then, and going forward, this is some way that I could give back to our community in the foreign service and gain some more insight and some more skills to, to really be helpful to our family. So you got your counseling degree online when you started in Shanghai. Yes. And then another change, you moved to Brasilia, completely different environment. And you were there for a year in 2016 and 2017. We thought, okay, Brasilia is it, right? We got warm weather. The embassy community there was great. There's a compound where as an American diplomat and connected to the embassy there. You had access to the beach volleyball court and the tennis courts and the kids' playground and the pool and the the facilities that would provided space for everybody to gather and be connected and, and spend time together. And there was just this kind of warm vibe of supporting families and encouraging families to be together in, in that embassy compound. It was just... Um, a nice breather from the pressure and the intensity of being in China. So then uh, in 2017, you moved to Arizona. You had your certification in counseling, and so now you're a counselor, a psychotherapist. Tell me about the kinds of counseling you do and the kinds of clients you see and the issues that they have. So it's been a process because I actually got to finish graduate school here in Arizona. So it was like the stars all aligned because I needed a place to do my internship and be able to really work with clients in a supervised way. Coming here to Arizona definitely expedited things and um, made all of that go faster. And so now I... I do work with kind of third culture kid issues. I work a lot with ADHD and learning differences, even helping adults in that space. And then uh, probably half of the work that I do is with couples and families, helping to change their communication styles and their connections and make those repairs. And so helping people shift so that they really have those solid connections that they rely on and that they can turn to. I think if anything, that's what being in the foreign service as a family really taught me. Like my kids have one another as best friends. They talk to each other. They want to spend time together. They joke around. They have learned that friends come and go, but they will always have their family. And that's really, really cool. Good lesson. 
So do you have any final thoughts or lessons learned, words of wisdom or advice for spouses whose partners are considering a career in the Foreign Service? And what would be realistic expectations of a career in the Foreign Service for a spouse? I've seen lots of different families do it different ways. Some couples where they're both in the Foreign Service, some where one's trying to maintain an online career, some where they put their career on pause while they're going from post to post. I think it's uh, it's always a struggle because the nature of the way that posts are chosen and the nature of the service. My son said, you can, you just have to be ready to move. You just have to be ready to go when it's time. And, and so I think if I have any advice, it's go all in, make that your opportunity to connect. Even in Montenegro, I was able to help uh, through the women's club and through an outside uh, religious charity, get donations to the children's hospital, get donations done to the refugee camp. And how rewarding that was. Okay. I, I wasn't fostering a career, but we were building a family and we were building those experiences and taking advantage of those experiences. And I think that being able to focus on learning the language and understanding the culture and taking advantage of what that opportunity had to offer um, for us made those posts much more rewarding and ultimately more successful. So, Michelle, on behalf of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your experiences about how you've adapted your life and career, learned many languages, and raised a family in many postings around the world. Thank you for listening. If you are curious to learn more about the lives of Foreign Service family members, subscribe and listen to additional episodes in our Partners in Diplomacy series. To learn more about the experiences of America's diplomats and diplomacy, visit our website at adst.org or check us out on Twitter and Facebook. The Partners in Diplomacy podcast is funded by the Una Chapman Cox Foundation. Our theme music is We Are One by Scott Holmes. Our assistant producer is Sumaya Ishrat. Our producers are James Fowler and Mark Rincon. Our audio engineering and post-production are provided by James Fowler and Post Productions. My name is Bonnie Miller. Until next time.